Good morning, church. It's great to see you. Uh, This morning we continue in our series in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 32. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. As we get there, I want to remind you of the context. This is an interesting chapter. Uh, We've been encouraged, reminded that we can draw near to the Father through faith in His Son, that we have access. We're not like the the priests uh, back in the Old Covenant where you could only have access one day a year. We, we have access all the time through Jesus. So we've been encouraged to, to make use of this access that we have. And then second, we've been warned that if we reject our need for Jesus, dying in our place as our substitute, then we throw away the only sacrifice that will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what we need to have is not just a one-time faith in Jesus, but an ongoing faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Because that's the only way to stay in the race and to finish the race. But what about when the race gets hard? When we've got to let go of meaningful things in order to hold on to the most important thing? When perhaps we are depressed, or when the unfairness or the injustice that we face in this world overwhelms us? Or when, like the Hebrews... We are persecuted for our faith in Christ. When trials come, how do we respond? How do we stay in the race? Hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 32. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But don't miss verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Would you bow with me? God, help us to internalize this text today. Lord, I I don't know what trials and tribulations are represented in this room, but I trust that there are many. I trust, God, that you are fully aware of the challenges that come in the race along the way to beholding our Savior face to face. And God, that that we need this word of admonishment and encouragement this morning. So help us to hear and to heed your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, passage, as I indicated, follows encouragement, and then warning. And now this passage is like more encouragement, but mixed with an awareness of the difficulties that the church is facing. And it's good to have that kind of encouragement sometimes, right? You know, sometimes you're down, you're discouraged, and you tell someone of your discouragement, and they're like, that's all right, just keep your chin up. Everything's going to be great. And the author of Hebrews doesn't do that. Instead, he encourages them by identifying with them in the struggles they're facing. And he tells them to endure in the faith, 
to make it to the finish line in the face of adversity and difficulty and trouble, there's two things we see. First, we must be reminded of the initial transformation that Jesus made in our lives. And then second, we must not throw away our confidence in Jesus, the one who is coming to bring what God has promised. First, we must be reminded of the initial transformation that Jesus made in our lives. We see this in verses 32 through 34. So after warning us about the everlasting dangers of falling away, now Hebrews commands us to be reminded of the former days. It's in the passive voice, which is interesting. He says, allow God to remind you of these things. Be around brothers and sisters who are going to help you remember uh, of your start in the faith and what God was doing your li- in your life from the beginning. The former days in this context likely refers to the early embrace of Christianity among this church. They embraced Christianity in a time when Christianity seemed brand new. It seemed to just emerge and to come out of nowhere. It was strange. It seemed to be threatening. And yet, while society saw them as different and perhaps even as a threat, they remained faithful and saw God sustain them as they were faithful to Christ. What the author is commanding the church to do is to be reminded of what it was like when they first began to run. Schreiner says this, Falling away from the living God does not fit with the amazing changes that marked their lives in the past. There's a truth beneath the surface of verse 32 that we must not miss. It's it's an important truth for all of us. And the truth is this. The author assumes, by way of his argument in verse 32, that there was a change in their life. There was a transformation in their life that they could remember. That, That there was a way of life and a course of life that they had before knowing Christ, and then once they knew Christ, something changed in their life. Be reminded of that transformation after you were enlightened, verse 31. After becoming aware of Jesus, and the, excuse me, verse 32. Becoming aware of Jesus and the promise of eternity with Him in the new heavens and the new earth, their faith was put to the test. Look at verse 32. They endured. They withstood. They did not give way. They bore up under a great conflict of sufferings. The word conflict is used often of a struggle in an athletic contest. The conflict, notice, is a great conflict. Did you know that Satan has no interest in you finishing the race? He would love to see you bow out just before you get to the finish line. And and the author is reminding them that when they were changed by Christ and they faced the fiery arrows and darts of trial and tribulation and temptation... They took up the shield of faith with which they were able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, Ephesians 6, 16. Why did the conflict come? Notice it's one conflict, but the sufferings are plural. Suffering happens in a variety of ways, does it not? It can happen on the job. It can happen at the university. It can happen in your marriage. It can happen in your family when you feel like you're the the odd man out because you love Jesus and you get together for the family reunion and no one else does. The sufferings come in a variety of ways, but the conflict is the same. Satan wants you to bow out. He wants you to quit the race before you finish. The sufferings here, the word means really two different things. Both the external threats 
that you face for believing in Christ and also the inward struggle as you process the pain of those external threats and keep resolving that Jesus is better than whatever the heartache you're going to face for following Him. A mark of a true Christian is that there's been a change in the direction and the hope of your life. A change that is demonstrated by endurance in the face of challenges and hardship and adversity. How did they endure? They kept looking to Jesus. In verses 33 and 34, notice the challenges that they faced. They are identified in the text. First, they were made a public spectacle. One commentator notes that identifying with Jesus in a world that does not want Him as King will mean becoming victims of verbal abuse and mockery and shame in the public square. Whether it is people mocking us for calling for prayer at a time such as this in our country, whether it is alienation in the workplace, whether it's being shamed in your own family, attacks and suffering happen in the life of the believer. The shaming comes through reproaches and tribulations. Do you see that in verse 33? Reproaches refers to verbal attacks and tribulations to the punitive consequences that could come for following Christ. There were They were victims of verbal abuse and various sorts of discrimination. And they became sharers. Not only were they personally attacked, those that they saw attacked, they became sharers in the burden with their brothers and sisters. If someone suffered for the sake of the Gospel, then the church would rally around them and support them through meals and hospitality and prayer and benevolence and whatever else was needed. The church did not side with the world They sided with their brothers and sisters in Christ. This word to share is the same word for fellowship. You might know the Greek word koinonia. The word means to fellowship. It's the exact same word here translated sharers. They partook in one another's sufferings knowing that if Jesus bore our shame, that surely we can bear one another's burdens as we await His return. Their faithfulness to Jesus was proven through endurance and solidarity in the face of verbal abuse and discrimination and more. Look at verse 34. Some of them even went to prison for their faith in Jesus. And look at what the church did. The church showed them compassion. Likely going to the places of their imprisonment, singing to them, praying for them, not leaving them alone, but encouraging them to remain faithful to Jesus. Finally, we see in verse 34 that Some had accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Now, this is a little old time out from the sermon just for a second. Just just an observation. The Scriptures are aware of property rights. And this text assumes that it is wrong to violate them. Now, I find that interesting in our day because there's a discussion and debate about all sorts of political philosophies and ideologies, some of which would want to undermine property rights. But the Bible assumes that property rights exist, that they're good, and that they ought not be violated. And yet, in this case, the property rights of people who love Jesus were violated. Their property was taken because they loved Christ. Can you imagine that? If because you were a Christian, your home was taken or your car was taken, your property was seized, what that might do in your life, how you might feel, your business was taken out of your hands because you loved Jesus and followed Jesus. 
And yet, how did these Christians face that injustice in their life? It says they faced this injustice with joy. Can you imagine that? Joyfully. How in the world did they face the injustice of their property being seized with joy? I believe it's because they believe the words of Jesus who said this, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, they maintain an eternal perspective in the face of temporary loss. They believed that if we lose everything in this world for Jesus, we've lost nothing at all. In Jesus, they had found a better possession. The possession that lasts forever. They were storing up treasures not on earth, but in heaven where, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in to steal. They were willing to endure hardship on the way to meeting Jesus because Jesus is better, as Hebrews keeps telling us again and again. He's better and greater than whatever we face on the way to beholding Him face to face. By the way, church, this is the key problem with what is known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel tells you that when you turn your life over to Jesus, that your life is always going to be better. That, that the sign of spiritual growth and progress is that things get better all the time. You're going to have health and wealth and material blessing and that if you don't have those things, that it's an evidence that you're not walking with God or God is not favoring you. But the, the witness of the book of Hebrews says just the opposite. That when trials and adversity and temptation comes to our life, that's the proving ground for real faith. If you never have a faith that's tested through trials and adversity, then how do you know that you have the real thing? And so, when adversity comes, remember it's an opportunity to endure. When life is challenging you, when you're tempted to lose the everlasting perspective that we have in Christ, when you're tempted to think, all these things are happening because God is mad at me or, or God doesn't love me. Remember that His own Son went to the cross to rescue you. And now we've been called to take up our cross and to die daily and to follow Him no matter how costly it may be. When it gets tough, don't look for a diversion. Don't look for a way out. Look back to the cross of Calvary. Look back to the difference that Jesus made in your life Recall your former fervor and passion for the things of God and resolve that you will keep moving forward in faith. Secondly, we don't just look back. We also look ahead. We don't throw away our confidence in Jesus because the One who is coming to bring what God has promised is going to come. In verse 35, the word therefore means as a result of or in conclusion. Because you've walked by faith through adversity before. Because you've already lived a life characterized by confidence. This bold access to Jesus. Communing with the saints. Forgiving and confessing sins to one another. Because this has already happened, we have confidence. Because we have this open connection to the Father through the Son. And we've known it in the past. Keep living in this confidence. Because as we live in confidence in the present, it produces confidence about our future. As we commune with God, the One who sent His Son the first time, and whose Son is coming again, we grow in confidence, even in the face of trial and adversity and setback. These things will either turn you inward, 
and away from God, or trials and adversity and setback will turn you upward in everlasting dependence and reliance upon God. So here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Don't let the circumstances of your faith sack your faith. Don't let the circumstances surrounding your faith rip faith right out from under your feet. Look at verse 35. Specifically, he says, don't throw away your confidence. The word throw away means to cast aside or to toss it overboard. We just sang a moment ago about Christ, our sure and steady anchor. Don't throw the anchor into the sea and then cut the rope and lose your anchor. Let Jesus hold you fast. As the finish line draws near and the race throws in an unexpected hill or the weather brings unimaginable heat and humidity, don't throw away your confidence in the finished work of Jesus. Don't take your eyes off the prize. Why? Because those who hold fast to Jesus are those who, verse 35 says, will receive a great reward. What is this reward? It's what we've been reading about in Hebrews. It's the promise of life everlasting in the heavenly city of God in the presence of Jesus, God's Son. If the readers stop trusting Jesus, they lose their confidence, they give in to the pressures to please the world, and they have no reward. For this reason, verse 36 makes kind of an obvious statement. I like obvious statements in the Bible. Sometimes you need an obvious statement. Hebrews can get a little confusing along the way, but verse 36 is pretty clear. We've got to endure. We have the need of endurance. The word need means necessary. Endurance is not an option for Christians, church. It is essential. It is only enduring faith that is saving faith. We've got to keep moving forward with confidence in Jesus regardless of the trials and ridicule and adversity that will come along the way. When the author says in verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, he's saying something very important to us, church. Doing the will of God is not a one-time event. It is a lifelong assignment. From the time that Jesus saves us until He returns or calls us home, we are called to do the will of God. And while it may take some time for each of us to specifically know what God's will is for our life, and that specific application of God's will may change as we age and morph, right? God, God might call us to do different things at different times. There's, there's a whole um, enterprise really out there about discerning God's will for your life. Entire books have been written about knowing God's will for your life. And a lot of time that, that has to do with career and family and all those questions of life. But I want you to know something, church, no matter if you're male or female, child, adult, senior, median age, just now getting to know Jesus, God has one will for the Christian that applies to all Christians. You don't need to read a book about it. You don't need to go to a seminar about it. You don't need to pray about it even. You just need to read the Word of God. God's overarching will for every Christian is, is that we will glorify Jesus Christ, His Son. You can do that as a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a pastor, a missionary. You can do it from all sorts of different occupations. But God's desire is that we would glorify Jesus Christ, His risen Son. Doing God's will in a world that is opposed to God and His Son will surely bring difficulty and temptation to quit along 
the way. And yet, those who endure are those who receive, verse 36 tells us, what was promised. What was promised in verse 36 refers to the promised rest, the everlasting rest in the presence of Jesus, Hebrews 4.1. It refers to the promised eternal inheritance, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It refers to the promised life in the lasting city, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. It is life everlasting at the finish line, and the finish line is the face of Jesus. We should not be surprised to know the pilgrimage to that heavenly city where Christ what reigns and dwells will be filled with trouble. Soon after he was stoned for preaching the gospel and thought left for dead, Paul gets up and goes to the next city in Acts chapter 14, and he tells us, the Bible tells us that Paul was encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Of God. Jesus said something similar in John 16, 13. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The promise that Jesus has overcome the world is the focus of verses 37 and verse 38. The author quotes primarily from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, to let us know that the one who is coming in judgment and victory will come to rescue and to save His people. Do you see it there? For yet in a very little while, meaning not much longer, Jesus is on the way. When you're in the race and it gets hot and it gets tiring and it gets difficult, Jesus is on the way. You know, Jesus has many names in the Scriptures that delight my heart. I think about when we read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, He's the Prince of Peace, He's Emmanuel. All these wonderful titles for Jesus. But as I was studying this week, I was struck by this name of Jesus that I had never really considered before. Jesus is called the Coming One. Or the One who is coming. His name is He who is coming. Notice that the verse doesn't just say, He is coming, but He who is coming will come. And He will not delay. It is not an accident that Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament passages that are written to a a Hebrew people who are in exile because in some sense we too are in exile. The Bible calls us often strangers and aliens in this world. It tells us that this present age is difficult, it's fallen, and and that it is against Christ. If you feel sometimes in this world like you're a fish swimming upstream, it's because, guess what? You are. You're going against the direction of the world. We're strangers and aliens and sojourners, but it's not going to always be that way. The race won't always be as difficult as it is in the present life because He who is coming will come. And He will not delay. When the purposes of God are accomplished and it is time for Jesus to vindicate His people and judge those who are not, there is nothing that will stop Jesus. Jesus is coming soon. He is the finish line. So don't stop running. Don't fall short of the finish line. His verdict will be final and forever. And the encouragement of this passage is to keep running, to stay in the race, keep living for the glory of Jesus, no matter how difficult it may be, because the race, even though it doesn't seem like it sometimes, is almost done. You see, church, 
Sometimes you just need to know the finish line is almost there. To keep going, you need to know that Christ will not delay. He will not abandon His people. You say, well man, it's getting rough, it's getting hard, it feels like this has to be the, the end times. Guys, we've, and ladies, we've been living in the last times since Jesus came the first time. If Jesus should tarry another 10,000 years, it would still be a sudden and soon return compared to the eternity that we'll spend with Him. 10,000 years compared to eternity is nothing. It's like one grain of sand on the seashore. So what must we do when we look around and it's, the world is crazy and our life is crazy and living for Jesus seems crazier and crazier by the minute in a world that is opposed to Him. We must remember that the One who is coming will come. And when it is time for Him to come, He will not delay. Those who fall away before the race is finished will be disqualified from God's kingdom on the day of judgment. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. Church, we have need of endurance. Those who keep trusting in the everlasting Son will not be destroyed in the judgment, but their soul will be preserved They will be saved by the One in whom they've trusted. The One who will come and finish the good work that He has started in you. Don't miss verse 39. Don't miss the author's confidence in verse 39. You say, man, chapter 10 is a tough chapter. Guess what? It's a tough chapter. It's a tough chapter to study and it's a tough chapter to preach. But don't miss what he says in verse 39. He says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. This clarifies for us how we ought to interpret the whole of chapter 10. The reason he's been warning us is not because he thinks we've already fallen and need to somehow be saved again or saved all over. He's saying, look, I see that you're beginning to fracture. I see that you're still in the race, but you're growing weary and tired and maybe you're starting to lose your focus on Jesus who is the finish line. And it's not that you've fallen away yet, but you're beginning to show some symptoms that you might fall away and now now I believe I've have, I have your attention. And because I have your attention and I've called you back to looking back to the things God has done in your life in the past, and I've called you to looking ahead to the fact that the One who is coming will come, then I know and I trust you are not and we are not those who will shrink back no matter what to destruction. We will stay in the race for the One who surely has saved and will save our souls. Would you pray with me? God, would you grant us, would you grant us grace to finish this race and to finish it well and to finish it strong? God, would you cause us to be those who are remembering the change you made in us at first? And to not be satisfied with the difference you made in our lives in the past. But God, to want to be a people who are ever increasing in the knowledge and the fullness of joy that is found in the presence of God. And which is accessible and available through the shed blood of your Son. 
God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't have that confidence, who doesn't know that they're even in the race, much less being encouraged to endure in the race, God, I pray that today You'd give them the liberty to step out of their seat or to stand up from their couch as they watch in their living room, wherever they are, God. Maybe listening on a podcast weeks from now. God, that You would just give them the pray to cry out to the liberty to cry out and pray to Jesus. God, save me. Rescue me. Thank You, Jesus, for dying for me and being raised that I might have life in You. And God, for Your church. Lord, we pray in a world that grows more confusing by the day that we would remember You've written the story that we need to trust and believe right here in Your Word. God, help us to hold fast to Christ, our sure and steady anchor, to stay faithful and to finish the race for the glory of Christ, Your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.